Hello. Um, about 20 odd years ago, I was invited to a birthday party. I know. Uh, <laughs> hasn't happened since that's not true not true not true um loosely friends in primary school a little boy in my class had invited me and about 20 other children round his family house to celebrate him turning six i don't know if you've ever been to a child's birthday party but i'll tell you now that it's about 50 times more exciting than an adult's birthday party and little old me was very excited because i love birthday parties but also because I'd been told that there might be a bouncy castle and that they had a really amazing house. So I remember arriving for this birthday party, party outfit on, ready for some pasta parcels, some musical statues, whatever other fun things might happen. And with the party in full swing, I wandered the house, probably carrying a bowl of jelly and ice cream. My preferred flavour was lime. Interesting, controversial possibly. Um, sitting in the living room, I noticed that the next room along was incredibly fancy. Um, it had glass panelled doors and you could see everything there. There was a table already laid with ornaments and beautiful china plates, crystal glasses. There was a large cabinet with everything on display. The carpet was pristine. It looked immaculate, not like any room in our house, sorry mum and dad, or any room that I'd really seen before. And I asked this little boy, the birthday boy, about this room, and he said, oh, that's our special room. We only go in there at Christmas, and sometimes not even then. Mum says it's only really for if the Queen came to visit. We're not allowed to go in. I was pretty confused and surprised. I asked myself why you'd have a room in your house that you wouldn't even go in. It just seemed quite stupid and quite strange. And right now, I imagine it seems strange to you that I'm starting my talk with this story about a birthday party. But today, I get the joy of sharing with you from the Bible about who God is. And we're going to be looking at the holiness of God and what that means for his people. And I'm not sure about you, but for me, I find the idea of holiness really difficult to pin down. What does it really mean that God is holy? What does it mean? Does it mean that he doesn't like when we do stuff wrong? Or perhaps we think of the phrase holier than thou and think that God is distant and aloof and far away from us. What does holiness actually mean? And as I was preparing, this little boy with the special room in his house came to mind. Because that is fundamentally what holiness is. When we say God is holy, we say God is set apart. He is transcendent. He is other. When we say God is holy, we're saying he's not like any other creature that we have ever seen before. Or any creature that we can even fathom. I imagine if I told the people of Israel about this room many, many thousands of years ago, they might say that this room is the holy room in the house, completely set apart. And so that's the framework we're going to use today. God is holy, so God is set apart. And now I started with a story, so I'm just going to briefly introduce myself. My name's Becca, um, and thank you, hello. I've been a part of Emmanuel for almost exactly 10 years. I came here 10 years ago as a fresher. Um, So if you're a fresher here, I was like you many moons ago. Um, And 
I found university and particularly Durham the most wonderful time to get to know God, to press in deeper to who he is and what he has for me and his purposes. Um, I'm passionate about a lot of things, but mostly I'm passionate about knowing Jesus and helping other people to do that too. And so that is my prayer for us this morning, that as we look at the holiness of God, we will know God better and that we will know that he loves us and that he has amazing things for us. Um, So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a look at the Bible. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that through your word you reveal yourself, that as we read the Bible we can see you revealed to us. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would illuminate the word, that you would illuminate uh, the things that you want to say to us this morning. Lord, would you make our hearts good soil to receive what you have to say. Amen. Um, So we're going to be spending our time, as you can see on the screen, looking at a book called Isaiah and chapter 6 of that book. Isaiah was a prophet to the people of God, so he shared many grand visions and pictures to help point the people of Israel back to God. Um, And often I find that these visions can be quite confusing or strange, um, but hopefully as we look, the Holy Spirit will breathe on it and we'll be able to understand it together. Um, So we're starting at chapter 6, verse 1, which as you can see is on the screen, but if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to it, that would be great. Um, Starting at verse 1, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This vision starts with a bit of context. It says, in the year that King Isaiah died. If you want to do a bit of reading through scripture, King Isaiah actually shows up a few times. He's also known as King Azariah. He's one in a line of kings of Judah and is actually described as being a pretty good and godly king, which isn't always a given when you read through the Bible. He became king at the age of 16, which can you imagine being king at the age of 16 and reigned for 52 years and was described as having done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was also a military leader and known across the region for his strength and his battle prowess. And he was all in all a pretty decent guy. So there's a lot to the simple line in the year that King Isaiah died. That would have been a pretty shaking time for the people. But it's especially significant when we read the line that comes next. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. King Isaiah dies, but God is seated on a throne. Immediately, Isaiah shows us something about the character of God and why he is so different, so set apart to men. Kings, rulers, authorities, powers, famous or otherwise, will all pass away and die. But where is the Lord? He is seated upon a throne. 
He always has been and he always will be. Isaiah reminds us that kings and rulers, good or bad, come and go. They are finite and their lives will end, but the Lord endures forever. He reminds us that there's a throne and there's a king, and no matter who we choose to place in that position, God will always rule and reign. And we read on that he's not only seated on the throne, but he is high and lifted up. The language that Isaiah uses just reminds us again and again that God is so set apart or holy and so far above anything or anyone that has ever been and ever will be. Um, Isaiah goes on to see that God is so glorious that the train of his robe fills the temple. Um, when I first read this, it's really hard for me sometimes to picture what a train is, um, especially because one of my daughter's favorite pastimes at the moment when she hears the word train is to shout back, choo-choo. Um, and so I often think of a steam train, but this isn't the kind of train that Isaiah means. He actually is referring to an item of clothing, like the train on a wedding dress. So if you imagine... Kate Middleton or Princess Diana, the royal wedding, with the train coming behind this beautiful, extravagant dress. It reminds people of the importance and significance of the person. And the longer it is, the even more important and significant they are. God's train here is so big that it fills the temple. It's not even his robe. It's the train of his robe. It's just the back of the robe fills the temple. His splendor and glory and majesty are unrivaled. And above this God, sitting high and lifted up on a throne, are seraphim, which are angels. They're described as having six wings, which they use to cover their face and their feet and to fly. They're not really like the pictures of angels that we imagine in nativity play. These creatures are so unlike anything we can imagine. They're so different to us as humans. But yet they are crying out a song about the Lord, declaring... Skipped ahead. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These creatures who seem so set apart and different to us are crying out holy. The word that, if you remember, means set apart. God is so different to any created being. He made the angels too. He is so unlike anything in all creation. And as we hear the angels sing this song, it's important to note that they say holy three times over. If you look in Hebrew, when we hear a word repeated, it's like it's being underlined and the writer is saying, look, this word's really important. So when it's said three times, it's especially important. It's like Isaiah is underlining it, highlighting it, pointing a big arrow at it and saying, this is the word that I want you to remember. The seraphim are declaring, this God is so different, so set apart, so other. He is holy, he is holy, he is holy. And this song echoes throughout eternity in a vision that another man called John has in the book of the Revelation right at the end of the Bible. The Lord is still seated on the throne and we read that the four living creatures, each of them with six wings weird creatures again, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The same God, high and lifted up, seated on the throne in Isaiah's vision, declared to be holy, is the same God into eternity. In case you haven't got it yet, Isaiah is saying that God is holy, And as we read on, how does Isaiah respond? 
Does he approach the throne of this king who is high and lifted up confidently? No, his first response is to cry, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. The natural response to seeing the holiness of God, to seeing his glory and his splendor and his majesty is to be aware of how not like him we are. When we see the holiness of God, we see our creatureliness in comparison. I wonder how you feel when you think of God as holy. Perhaps you think it makes sense. You see God as distant and set apart. Or maybe you think the opposite for you. Maybe God's kind of like a close, cuddly friend. And the God who's seated on a throne is completely alien. Isaiah's response, I think, is the only real way that we can react (coughs) when we see the measure of God's holiness. Here, Isaiah's vision of God's holiness shows him as set apart in his righteousness and his moral perfection. In Genesis and then throughout scripture, we read that humanity, time and time again, chooses to turn from God. We have no righteousness of our own. We have no moral perfection. (coughs) Sorry. We are not like God. And even though God is king, as Isaiah clearly sees in this vision, we choose to take the crown from his head and place it on our own. And this is what sin is. We want to be like God. But we don't want to be like God in his righteousness. We want to be like God in his rights. We want to rule and reign as God does. When only God is the true king. And no matter who you are, how good you might think you are, the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all men of unclean lips, like Isaiah says here. All we can do when we behold (coughs) the holiness of God is to see the stark reality of how sinful we are in contrast. And Isaiah recognizes that it isn't just him, but it's mankind as a whole. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Our world is broken. We can see that when we hear stories of horrific things happening. I need only open the news app on my phone to find story after story of the wickedness and depravity of mankind. Murder, rape, abuse. This is not how the world should be. We know that it isn't. (coughs) I'll have some water. But we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Humanity is sinful and so unlike the holy God that Isaiah sees in this vision. Like Isaiah, when we have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, we see that he is spotless. He is without sin. He is holy and he is so unlike us. Scripture tells us that sin is abhorrent to God. Sin and God... (coughs) cannot coexist because he is entirely holy entirely righteous entirely set apart just like that special room at the little boy's birthday party perfectly laid out and cleaned untouched by human hands god is holy (coughs) sorry everyone If we need proof of the moral perfection of God, we can look to the law that he created. Particularly in the first few books of the Bible, God outlines to his people a set of laws and ways that they should live. The law shows us what it means to be completely holy, morally pure, and completely righteous. (coughs) 
<coughs> Sorry, everyone. I'm going to take more water. But we are a sinful people. We cannot measure up to the law. A writer in the Bible puts it so well when he says that we are slaves to sin. We allow sin to be our master. And so how can we ever reach God? How can we ever touch him? How can we even come close? And the answer is that by ourselves, we cannot. We cannot reach towards a holy God in our human frailty and draw him closer to ourselves. But though it seems helpless and we might cry, woe is me and leave it there, Fortunately, that's not where the story ends. Hallelujah. God remains holy, but he doesn't leave us to wallow in our wretchedness. Instead, he intervenes. But he doesn't just send someone else to deal with it. He doesn't just zap, and we can all be holy too, so don't worry about the sin anymore. We know that God is completely holy, but he's also completely just. One of the things I love about the character of God is that there is so much to know about him. It's not just that God's... holiness is one slice of the god pie and then his justice is another slice and his mercy another and his love another no it's that god is entirely holy god is entirely just god is entirely love and many other things besides and these aspects of his nature interact with one another That means that God's justice is holy. God's love is holy. God's mercy is holy. Many of us will have heard and perhaps agreed when others have stated their unbelief in God with the justification that, no, a loving God would just never do that, or a just God would never do that. But the reality of God's holiness is that his love and his justice do not act in a way that we do as earthly creatures. If God is entirely holy, entirely set apart, entirely transcendent from our humanness, then there are going to be things about the way he does stuff that we don't understand. And so it's out of this entirely holy nature, an entirely just nature, an entirely loving nature, that he simply cannot excuse sin and say, no, it doesn't exist, it doesn't matter. He knows that something has to be done. He knows that there needs to be a punishment for sin. If God were not holy, sin would not be sin. He is the benchmark for what is morally pure and good. There is nothing so unlike God than sin, and it is abhorrent to him. God needs to punish sin and act according to the holy justice that is essential to his character. And this punishment, this appeasement of his wrath can only be done by one who is already totally holy, perfect, righteous, without sin. And as Isaiah highlighted, we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Who among us is without sin? Humanity is not like God. We are not holy on our own. And God cannot stop being holy because it's who he is. So who can intervene? And it's in this beautiful moment that the holiness, the justice, the mercy, the righteousness, and the love of God meet together. Because that same king who we saw high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, transcendent in his glory and majesty and splendor, steps off the throne and says, here I am, I will go. The father in his holy love, so unlike anything we mere creatures can comprehend, sends his only son to be the sacrifice for our sin. The only one that can intervene to reconcile a sinful people to relationship with holy God 
is God himself. And so Jesus, God incarnate, God made flesh, comes to earth, the king of all kings who deserves to be seated on the throne forever, leaves the comfort and glory of heaven. He is born of a woman and becomes a human baby, an utterly dependent baby. He himself dwells in the midst of these people of unclean lips. He remains completely without sin. When we stand next to the mirror of the law, we are shown to be inadequate, sinful, morally impure. Jesus is the only one who can stand beside that mirror and be its spitting image. He is the only one who is without sin. He identifies with our human brokenness, but remains righteous and without blemish. Though tempted as we are, he lived a perfect and sinless life. And then knowing the complete holy justice of the Father, Jesus knows that he must pay the price for sin if he's going to reconcile a sinful people to a holy God. The price was death and Jesus knew he would pay it. For a lot of us, that can feel like quite a simple thing. But can we imagine how Jesus felt like a lamb led to the snorter, knowing what was before him? He knew what would happen. The same God who in Isaiah's vision was clothed in majesty and splendor, was stripped naked and endured the hurt and humiliation as people took lots for his clothing. He would have experienced the agony of seeing his friends betray him. He knew the pain and fear of despair as he asked God to take the cup from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as his hands were nailed to a cross, he would have felt the agony Then the pain of having a crown of thorns shoved onto his head, vinegar dripped onto his tongue. Jesus' pain would have been unbearable. The word excruciating comes from the process of crucifixion, as there are so few words that express its agony. And why did he endure the cross? A book later in the Bible called Hebrews tells us that Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. He did it for us. And you might struggle to believe that God would do that for you. Um, Earlier this morning, I I was reading a book with my daughter, Phoebe, called God Loves. Um, And on each page, it says a different thing that God loves. Um, So God loves me. God loves my mom. God loves my dad, etc. And for every single page, she would say, I'd say God loves. And then she'd go, me. God loves me. God loves me. And as I was reading it with her and listening to her childlike joy in knowing that God loves her, I was reminded that that is true for each of us as well. God loves me. God loves the person sitting next to me, not that there is one. If I turn sideways, it's kind of like that's the case. God loves the person sitting next to you, but he loves you. He loves you. God loves you. Jesus went through the agony of the cross for the joy of seeing you reconciled to the holy God for whom you were created. God could not stop being holy. It's who he is. But because of the blood of Jesus, we are now invited to be holy too. If we imagine the special room at that little boy's birthday party, set apart and holy, it's not that the room becomes any less beautiful or any less resplendent. But because of Jesus, we're now invited to walk into it and feast with him. We no longer need to look from a distance and proclaim, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. But instead, we can enter into the presence of the Holy God. Hebrews tells us later, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The writer of Hebrews uses a similar analogy throughout. We can now boldly and confidently enter the holy places. Us who are sinful, us who are so unlike God, can enter into the presence of this holy God who is high and lifted up. What an amazing reality that because of what Jesus has done, we can stand in the presence of God. And not only that, but we are also made holy because of the blood of Jesus. We too become set apart, unlike the world around us. We are able to flee from sin and we are able to pursue righteousness. Before Jesus, we were sinners. We were slaves to sin. And in Jesus, praise God, that is no longer who we are. We have been made holy too. We are now a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are saints. We are not sinners. Now we too can truly join in the chorus of angels that echoes into eternity, where we will one day be with Jesus forever and declare that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Hallelujah. And so what does this mean for our lives? If God is holy and we too are made holy, how does that change anything? Firstly, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you've never asked him to be your Lord and Savior, I tell you now it's the best decision you'll ever make. You were made to be in a relationship with God. You will not regret it. Go and find someone who will talk to you about Jesus and pray with you and help you to know him. And if you do know Jesus, I want to encourage you to do a few things. Firstly, make repentance and confession a habit of your daily life. The beauty of what Jesus has done is that confession can be a wonderful way for us to draw near to God. We can stand before this holy God, look him in the eye, and confess our deepest shame, our most horrendous sin that we perhaps have not told anyone else. And we can watch as he doesn't turn his face away, he doesn't flinch, he doesn't purse his lips, he doesn't do anything but look at us in love. Because of what Jesus has done, we are pure and spotless before him. Find people that you can be accountable to, people that will honestly call you out on your sin and remind you to repent because you are not that sinful person you once were. But I also urge you to behold Jesus again. We always need to start by beholding Jesus. If we just look at ourselves and look at our sinfulness, we will get nowhere. It's when we behold Jesus in his glory and majesty and splendor, when we behold this king seated on the throne, but we also behold the meek and tender Jesus upon a cross who has made a way for you to know this holy God. As we behold him more and more, we will become more like him. The Bible tells us we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are becoming transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are becoming holy just as God is holy. I'm going to invite the band back up and I'm going to pray. Father, thank you that you are so unlike us. Thank you that you are holy, holy, holy.
the U.S. set apart, transcendent other. And Lord, thank you that even though we couldn't do it by ourselves, that you sent your son to die so that we might enter into your presence, so that we might become holy too. And Lord, as we worship you now, we thank you that you have made that way for us. It's because of what Jesus has done that we can worship you um, and know that you hear our prayers, that you draw near to us, and that we can worship you in your holiness, Lord. Amen.